you can live out your MasterChef dreams. When you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Hey, this is DeRay, and welcome to Pod Save the People. On this episode, we're joined by Lara Bazelon to talk about her latest book, Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction. And what's so interesting about the use of restorative justice in the context of a wrongful conviction is that everybody is a victim in a certain way. The people who were horribly, horribly taken advantage of and had all these things happen to them, they feel like perpetrators because they participated unwittingly in this catastrophe, which was the wrongful conviction. And then we have the news with me, Brittany Clinton, Sam, as usual. You know, the thing on my heart right now is I was in my house and it was messy because I was traveling. I like left really quick and so I came back home. It was clothes from the dryer that I left on the table because I was going to fold them and like da da da. And what I did, I just took like a couple hours and I actually cleaned up. I did all the laundry and like folded everything and put it where it's supposed to be and like took the trash out and did all the things. And I say that because what I normally do is like I just move things around. Like I'm like, oh, you know, I'll just put the pile of clothes over here. Nobody's coming over anyway. But there's so much sort of peace, freedom and power in actually putting things where they need to go and actually like attacking the issue head on and like really cleaning up as opposed to just moving things and hiding things. And I think about how I'm trying to go into 2019 is there some there's some things that I've just been putting off. I've been sort of moving them around. I'm like, oh, I'll do this. I sort of do this. Instead of just like tackling it head on and, and dealing with the thing. And I think that sometimes uh, we don't deal with the thing because we'll always be busy if we keep rearranging stuff or we feel like there's infinite time. So it's like, oh, I'll get back to the clothes. I'll do it later. Nobody's going to see it. But the reality is that I'm going to see it. And because I'm coming into a place every day where like there are these piles of things like that actually changes the way I think about the space. And I think about that in the work in general is that like dealing with some of these issues that we should just attack head on changes the way that we enter into all the spaces that we go into. So what I want to share this week is like tackle the pile of clothes head on. Clean up the things that need to be cleaned up in your life head on. Don't just move things around, put them in closets, do your work. Let's go. Hey y'all, it's the news. This is Brittany Packnett at Miss Pack Yeti on all social media. And this is Sam Sinyangwe at Sam Sway on Twitter. And this is Clint Smith at Clint Smith the Third. Aye, aye, aye. And this is Duray at Duray, D-R-A-Y on Twitter. So I know I'm in St. Louis. I know Sam is by a very sad looking Plymouth Rock outside of Boston. <laughs> uh, DeRay, you couldn't get to D.C. because of the snow. And Clint, you had to shovel your snow for the very first time. I got stuck in the house for like half a day in St. Louis because uh, the snow is like really here all over the place. Winter has come. Clint, how was uh, shoveling that driveway? Man, now that you're a shoveling shoveling snow is trash. Like it is not the <laughs> the cool thing, you know. Like you see shoveling snow <laughs> in the movies, and it's like Hugh Grant like shoveling snow, and then the like the woman comes up and she's like, "You look like you could use a break, and get some coffee," and it's like. <laughs> n- none of that happens in in real life. It's were there uh, no what, neighborhood kids, uh, Clint? Like, are kids not coming around? To, I feel like an old person being like, "Are there not kids in the neighborhood that you can pay to shovel your snow?" <laughs> pay them twenty dollars, nah. and they come shovel the snow. <laughs> not in twenty nineteen. Everybody on Instagram, everybody, the kids are just scrolling. <laughs> so I'm lucky that I missed the snow, but what I did not miss was the experience of seeing Plymouth Rock for the first time. So I was in uh, at the Data for Black Lives conference this past weekend in Boston, and on the way back, decided to take a detour and see Plymouth Rock. Uh, it's about 30 minutes outside of Boston. And so I'm expecting like this massive cliff with like a massive boulder and some sort of plaque and a monument and something like, you know, you you hear about this in the history books and it's sort of, there's this mythology about Plymouth Rock and the Mayflower. And of course, you know, that, that mythology has a different connotation depending on how the pilgrims interacted with folks who, who arrived. But seeing the actual thing, like, I don't know if, if any of y'all have seen it, but it was so tiny and disappointing. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I don't even know how to, like, it's probably, I'm going to say 
like eight feet across and maybe like two <laughs> feet wide and it has a 1620 on it because the year of the mayflower um and that's it right like that's that's plymouth rock and i i don't know why i haven't seen any pictures of it until now but i was just disappointed <laughs> i always thought plymouth rock was a metaphor it seems like a metaphor for all colonizers <laughs> that they, you know, have delusions of grandeur and things may be smaller than they appear when it comes to, I don't know, folks taking over your land and engaging in genocide and enslaving people, et cetera, et cetera. The really crappy part about maybe not Plymouth Rock, but certainly this snow is that there are furloughed workers all across D.C. who just got hit with the snow. And so like for folks who are already having trouble making their bills, having to stock up on groceries, being stuck in the house, kids being out of school, all of that really racks up. And here we are at the point where I do believe we're now in the era of the longest shutdown in history. Is that right? It is officially the longest government shutdown ever. Yeah. Yep. Which is indeed shameful, especially given that it's over a made-up crisis fueled by racism and xenophobia. I'm glad you brought that up, Brittany, because many news outlets, as we know, have been talking about the shutdown and who the shutdown has been affecting, how it's been affecting them. Uh, and we're hearing all of these stories about tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people who are struggling, who are going without a paycheck, who might suffer from like very real material ramifications in terms of not being able to feed their family. People will be evicted from their homes. People are already making choices between food and medical bills, so on and so forth. So I think it's important that we know that this is having a real impact on people's lives. And one of the spaces that it is continuing to impact people that we do not often hear about is prisons. So for my news, I'm talking about some great reporting that's been done by the Marshall Project. And they've been bringing attention to and illuminating how the Federal Bureau of Prisons is currently operating without funding because of the government shutdown. It is furloughed up to half of its 36,000 person staff, including many who provide therapeutic programs for prisoners and other services that are considered not to be essential. And the agency is currently asking its remaining employees to keep working unpaid, focusing on maintaining security, even if that's not usually their primary job or the job that they were hired for. And so you often have people who are now in positions in which they are asked to do a job that they're not necessarily qualified or hired for, and that kind of compromises the safety and security of folks in the prison. At some facilities, the people who are incarcerated there have had visits canceled with their families uh, because of lack of funds. There are folks who are terminally ill and who've been waiting compassionate release to die at home alongside their families. Now they have to wait even longer because their applications are going unread because the people who serve in administrative capacities who would typically read those applications are no longer coming to work because they're not deemed essential. And there's at least one instance in which a prison had to reportedly stop ordering food and toiletries for people who were incarcerated there to purchase at the commissary. And that creates a real more than inconvenience that creates a health risk for for a lot of these folks. And lastly, it's really important to remember that the First Step Act that passed last month, I believe, that we talked about on this podcast, there's some good, there's some bad, but it's seen by most people as a net positive, if a tiny positive, for criminal justice and criminal justice reform. But now implementation of many parts of the First Step Act are put on hold because, again, so many of the administrative folks who are responsible for putting into place so many of the sort of bureaucratic things that would make the wheels go on this are not working. And that means that people who should be coming home and being released from prison are having to wait for who knows how long for that to happen. And I just wanted to bring up how this government shutdown, while it is very clearly impacting hundreds of thousands of people, if not millions of people across the country, it is also impacting so many of the folks that we often forget to bring up. What is good about the Marshall Project's reporting is the way in which it you know, centers folks who are incarcerated uh, and the impact that the shutdown is having on them. Uh, and that's a direct contrast with some of the reporting that we've seen from other news outlets that have actually reported in ways that try to depict folks who are incarcerated as somehow benefiting from being fed during a government shutdown while the prison guards are not being paid. So there's an article from NBC News uh, that came out last week, uh, and the title is, Inmates Eat Holiday Steak During Shutdown While Prison Guards Go Unpaid. There was an, uh, another article from USA Today with the title, Government Shutdown, Federal Inmates Feast on Cornish Hens Steak as Prison Guards Go Unpaid. So there was this whole 
sort of genre of reporting over the past week that has depicted what was going on as somehow folks who are incarcerated living sort of a lavish lifestyle while the prison guards sort of have to work uh, in the context of a shutdown not being paid. Now, you know, mind you, folks who are incarcerated are working without being paid as well, and that is just the norm for them. That's not something that's unique to a shutdown. Uh, and surely we should be sympathetic to folks who are working in the context of this shutdown, but it is particularly interesting to see the ways in which you know, the media in general has been sympathetic towards everybody impacted by the shutdown except for folks who've been incarcerated. What worries me so greatly is that if for this administration, the idea of a child going without food is not enough to inspire empathy or sympathy, then most certainly the needs and the humanity of the very people that they relish locking up wouldn't inspire that kind of empathy or sympathy. You know, we were, for good reason, very worried when Jefferson Beauregard Sessions became Attorney General of the United States because of his racist history, because of his history with the criminal justice system, because of his support of mass incarceration. And here we are with William Barr, the new nominee for attorney general, having written papers and dissertating in so many different forms and fashions, a push for more incarceration. That's literally the title of a paper that he wrote. Quite frankly, these folks don't care about anybody but themselves, especially the folks that they've been trying to lock away and have been working to lock away for so long. One of the things that I'm mindful of when we think about the shutdown are all the ways that people just don't even think about the federal government operating. It's one of the frustrations that I think the four of us actually had during the election is that people in 2016 were like, oh, you know, everything's local, like federal government doesn't really matter, like blah, blah, blah. And and this is a great example of you seeing where it does matter. I'm fascinated with the way food stamps are administered at the, at the national level is where they're funded and they're administered at the states. What's going to happen uh, with food stamps because of the shutdown is that the February allowances are actually going to have to go out at the end of January, so around January 20th which is a big deal because the federal government has only ever released uh, SNAP funds early for like a state. They've never actually done it across the country. And, you know, if there's any administration that you have no faith in the actual administrative capacities, it's this one. And for those of you who just who, who don't know much about food stamps or, or SNAP, is that SNAP purchases account for nearly 10% of all grocery business in the U.S. each year, which is a lot. And because the federal government is closed, is like, will they even be notified? Like, how will they be notified? So some people might think it's an error. Some people, like, might not spend the money because they might think that they shouldn't. Like, how will they know that they actually get the money early? The majority of SNAP recipients are children, elderly, or have a disability. And remember that there's, like, a, another part of government funding that's called Funding for the Special Supplemental Nutrition Program for Women, Infants, and Children – which provides like infant formula, breastfeeding support, and stable foods to low-income pregnant mothers and their children. And it is funded only through February. This program serves about half of all babies born in the United States. And then there's a program that you know really well, which is the School Nutrition Initiatives, which serves lunch and serves about 30 million children each day. And that only has funding to last through March right now. So, you know, hopefully this shutdown ends soon. One of the phrases that I think is actually important in this moment is that there's some issues that aren't left or right. They're top and bottom. And this is one where, like, there are a lot of people that I think are part of the power structure of the Republican Party who actually aren't feeling the consequences of the shutdown at all. But there are a lot of people who have to be in that base who are feeling the shutdown. And I'm shocked that, like, they haven't stopped this. I was reading about the Chippewa Indians, and in particular, they still receive a great deal of federal funds in order to run the programs that they determine themselves. So there are things like the Indian Health Service, uh, child care, food distribution, heating assistance, Head Start and education. All of those are currently affected by the shutdown. And in 2013, when there was a government shutdown, that same uh, tribe lost $1 million that they never recovered. So we keep talking about about workers that are furloughed and that is bad enough, but at the very least, the bill was just passed to secure their uh, back pay. But there are tribal nations who will never actually recover the funds on their own land that they should have gotten in the first place. Don't go anywhere. More Politics of the People is coming.
Pod Save the People is brought to you by Factor. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factor's no prep, no mess meals. Meet your wellness goals in time for summer thanks to the menu of chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factor's fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. So no matter how busy you are, you'll always have time to enjoy nutritious, great-tasting meals. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. You can crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients that you can trust. Make your day delicious from breakfast to dessert. Stay fueled with easy, nutritious options. Treat yourself to restaurant-quality meals that feature premium ingredients like filet mignon, shrimp, and blackened salmon. Now, let me tell you all, they sent me the Factor meals, and it is absolutely true. Two minutes, pop it in a microwave, and it literally is restaurant-quality food. So far, my favorites are chicken parmesan. I am a chicken parmesan connoisseur. This stuff is good. It has broccoli and tomatoes, and it is creamy and amazing. Mmm, yum. So easy to throw it in the microwave and have a good meal. I'm saving money. I'm not eating out at restaurants so much. It's healthy. Like I cannot say more about Factor Meals. So if you want to be down with this, head to factormeals.com slash PSTP50 and use code PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month. That's code PSTP50 at factormeals.com slash PSTP50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next month while your subscription is active. Posse of the People is brought to you by BetterHelp. Now, y'all, the beginning of this year has just been a lot going on, like from work and family and friends and just, you know, the weather's been awful in New York City and Baltimore. There are a lot of stressors happening, big and small, and we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively. Therapy is a safe space to get things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com people today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp. ATLP.com slash people. You can start your day off right. When you find a professional on Angie to get your plumbing right first. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. So I want to talk to you about a place that some of you may have heard of and some of you may have not. It is Bennett College in North Carolina. Bennett College is one of the few historically black colleges or universities or HBCUs for black women specifically. It was founded in 1873. It started off giving black people elementary and secondary level education. And in 1873, a group of emancipated formerly enslaved people actually purchased purchased the site in North Carolina where the college currently sits. And so there were immense challenges to establish Bennett and so many other HBCUs around the country to ensure that there was some kind of access to this thing called the American dream for black people. Following an era when in many states it was illegal to teach black people to read and write, HBCUs served as a beacon of light and they still serve as a beacon of hope, access and opportunity for so many black young people across this country. But Bennett is currently in trouble. When the market crashed a decade ago, they suffered from dramatically lower enrollment because a lot of those families lost their federal education support. And so enrollment is actually less than half of what it was just a decade ago. And that loss of funding has put the college's accreditation at risk. If Bennett does not raise $5 million by February 1st, they risk losing their accreditation, which essentially means that the students that are enrolled there now and the students who want to come there in the future will have a an education that, while incredibly important to them, will be deemed lacking value by the 
U.S. government. And so we keep talking in society about trusting black women, listening to black women, voting for black women, supporting black women. This is an opportunity for us to invest in black women. This is about continuously investing in educational equity. There is still a real need for HBCUs out there. And so there are a number of ways that you can support Bennett, which I'll talk about in a second. But I wanted to make sure to bring this to the pod. And I'm thankful to the Bennett College Student Government Association and one of my Twitter followers, AK can be considers for sharing information with me throughout the last few weeks. Uh, I think it's so important for us to do as their hashtag says and stand with Bennett. UNCF has some great data about the impact that HBCUs have on the black community at large. And, and so they talk about how today the nation's 106 HBCUs make up just 3% of America's colleges and universities, but they produce almost 20% of all black graduates and 25% of black graduates who go into STEM fields of science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Uh, more than Additionally, more than 70% of all students at HBCUs qualify for federal Pell Grants, and 80% of HBCU students receive federal loans. And I bring that up to to emphasize this point that like HBCUs are so important and so central to mitigating the impacts of the wealth gap to, to creating opportunities for social mobility and economic mobility for communities, for first generation students and for communities who may not have had access uh, to universities, access to college who are coming from communities that have been historically underserved with regard to their access to higher education. And so these schools are, are providing a space for students who might not otherwise have an opportunity in other places to get a college degree. And I think if you are really someone who is interested in helping to create social mobility for black people, donating to historically black colleges and universities is one of the best places that you can put your money. So the organizers need a total of $5 million by February 1st, and they've raised already more than a million. So they need folks to close that gap uh, and invest in black women, invest in Bennett College and HBCUs. Uh, Obviously a great cause uh, and a far better cause than some of the things that are currently being invested in. Uh, So for example, that racist wall that has raised more than $20 million on the GoFundMe. Uh, By the way, that money can't even be used to fund the wall because they can't give that money to the government. Uh, to build the wall. Uh, and yet $20 million they were able to raise. So if they can raise $20 million for that, uh, you know, we need to come together and raise uh, this remaining uh, fewer than $4 million uh, in order to close the gap here. Now, one of the things that's interesting about Bennett is that since 2005, eight Southern colleges have appealed their loss of accreditation and only one has succeeded. So Bennett is in a tough situation in this moment. There really is only one other place that's ever successfully gotten through this phase where their accreditation has been challenged because of the budget. And they essentially have to show that they have enough money to keep the institution open for a while. And if they lose their accreditation, the challenge for them, they won't necessarily have to close immediately, but colleges and universities that aren't accredited can't take any federal funds. So Pell Grants, federal student loans, and other federal monies as payment for tuition or other school expenses, and nearly all of Bennett's students get financial aid. So the week of February 18th is when the appeals panel will convene around their accreditation. And Bennett's uh, leader has said that they will sue to try and hold off uh, losing the accreditation in the process, but they are in a really tough position. So uh, hopefully they can survive this phase and, and continue to do really good work. So here is how you can stand with Bennett. You can follow that hashtag, stand with Bennett, and Bennett is spelled B-E-N-N-E-T-T. You can also go to their website, bennett.edu, to donate. If you use Cash App, their cash tag is stand with Bennett. It is confirmed and verified, and that money will go to the school. Or if you want to text to give, you can text BELLS, B-E-L-L-E-S, because they are the Bennett Bells, to the number 444-999. So my news is about a report that the Department of Justice produced attempting to link immigration and terrorism. Back in 2017, Trump signed that executive order, uh, the Muslim ban. And as part of that executive order, it actually required the Department of Justice to produce a report that investigates the relationship or alleged relationship between immigration and terrorism. And so that report was produced last year. And as soon as it was produced, 
it was clear that there were a range of errors and misstatements and misrepresentations of the data on the relationship between uh, immigration and crime and terrorism. So, for example, uh, in the report, it said that uh, immigrants were convicted of 69,900 sex offenses between 2003 and 2009. Well, it turns out that that was a lie and that the data actually that they were referring to was from a period between 1955 and 2010. So 55 years of data produced that 69,000. So that was one error. They made many more errors. So for example, they claimed that there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of uh, immigrants who were suspected of terrorism, international terrorism. Uh, well, it turns out that uh, more than 100 of the people that they were referring to uh, actually didn't immigrate to the United States. Uh, they were extradited here. So the United States brought them here uh, intentionally as part of an investigation. So you know, there were a range of errors. The federal government was called out on making those errors when they produced the report. And they were sued under the Information Quality Act, which requires the federal government to produce data and information in a way that is true and not intentionally mislead or misrepresent or lie to people. And under that lawsuit, that actually for one of the first times in history has gotten the Department of Justice to admit that it lied to people uh, or at least misrepresented the truth uh, in their words. So uh, Michael Allen, the Deputy Assistant Attorney General for Policy Management and Planning, uh, wrote a letter a couple of weeks ago to the groups that have sued the federal government saying, quote, in future reports, the department can strive to minimize the potential for misrepresentation. Now, what they have refused to do is actually change the report uh, to correct the report or retract uh, the false statements made in the report. So this is an example of what happens not when the federal government doesn't collect data, but what they've chosen to do is to skew the data and report the data in a way that intentionally misleads the public, uh, that intentionally seeks to demonize immigrants in order to justify the government's agenda and, and the Trump administration's agenda. Sam, I didn't know what the Information Quality Act was until uh, you brought it up and until you were talking about it in the context of this article. And I <laughs> I just think it's it's fascinating that we we have a law on the books that directs the Office of Management and Budget to issue government-wide guidelines to, quote, provide policy and procedural guidance to federal agencies for ensuring and maximizing the quality, objectivity, utility, and integrity of information disseminated by federal agencies. And that, like, for the last two years, we have been inundated with misinformation, devoid of integrity, devoid of objectivity, devoid of quality, incessantly. And I, I, the fact that I'm hearing two years in that this law exists, which should have been brought up seemingly like at every other day of this administration. But here we are. You know, it's so interesting because, Sam, when we all first started working together on Campaign Zero and mapping police violence, one of the biggest problems that we were fighting was the lack of information from the federal government. So the federal government was not collecting information on, for example, uh, police violence and police killings, among other things. Uh, primarily a lot of data that would be useful to marginalized communities that the federal government simply did not prioritize collecting. And through a lot of work and advocacy, protest and lobbying, but now, to Clint's point, the, the issue is not so much lack of information as much as it is complete misinformation, intentional misinformation. And I'm not sitting here saying that the, the government has never misinformed people before or withheld information or given people information uh, that was misleading. I'm certainly not saying that. What I am saying is that it feels like an all-out assault, an insult to our collective intelligence, because they're literally saying, we know we were wrong, but we're not going to change it. And why are we not going to change it? Them correcting things would absolutely not uh, support the narrative that they're trying to create or the agenda that they're trying to push, which is why we have to be all the more vigilant. But it also means that our vigilance is not just against fake news and info wars and Russia. It is also continuously against this administration that wants to intentionally mislead the people. 
And this is like a hallmark of propaganda. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders was on uh, Fox of all places, Fox News Sunday, and she said she was being interviewed by Chris Wallace. And and she said, we know that roughly nearly 4,000 known or suspected terrorists come into our country illegally. And we know that our most vulnerable point of entry is at the southern border. And Chris Wallace, had he was ready, and he goes, wait, 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 I know the statistic. I didn't know you were going to use it, but I studied up on this. Do you know where those 4,000 people come, where they're captured? Airports. She goes, not always. And then Wallace says, the State Department says there hasn't been any terrorists that they found coming across the southern border with Mexico. And she has nothing else to say, so she just repeats the 4,000 line. Also, I don't know if you saw recently that El Chapo, uh, who thought that El Chapo would be used in the fight against the wall, is that during the El Chapo trial, his team has said they smuggled a lot of drugs and none through the border. <laughs> he was like, hey, we came through all the legal ways, so I personally know this is the yeah. I can attest to Or the, the tunnels, <laughs> but the wall's not going to stop the tunnel. So, you know, El Chapo is reminding us that the wall don't matter, and he is arguably the, the most successful living uh, drug kingpin in the world, and we have the administration lying. The data shows that the wall's not going to do anything, uh, and they have just been making up stats around terrorists. And I'm mindful that the people who shut up schools, the people who shut up movie theaters, malls, they didn't cross any wall. They were already here. And like we aren't doing anything around gun violence at the national level or a host of other issues that could actually help if we are focused on the outcomes. But for the right, this has never been about the outcomes around violence. It's always been around the outcomes around bigotry and hate. Okay, my news this week is about food insecurity on campus. For the first time, the federal government has done a a survey study of studies that highlights food insecurity on college campuses in a significant way. And what they find is that there are a lot of students who are at risk of dropping out because they literally don't have enough food to eat. And there just wasn't a lot of good data on how many. And there still isn't great data on how many. So what the Government Accountability Office did was conduct a review of 31 studies that met their criteria, which meant that the studies had been conducted in the United States since 2007 and didn't have severe methodological limitations. 22 of those 31 studies estimate that more than 30% of students are food insecure. That is wild. So you think about uh, the first-time students, first-generation students, students who are raising children, and single parents uh, are the most vulnerable to be enrolled in, a, in an institution and not know that they're going to have a meal, like three meals a day at least. Uh, one way that schools have been planning to, to combat food insecurity is by food pantries. And I honestly didn't know that universities have food pantries like that. It sort of seems to me that like if you know food insecurity is a problem with a subset of your students that you would like, I don't know, there'd be like a meal plan or something. But there aren't even enough food pantries on campuses where food insecurity is particularly high. What I also didn't know is that uh, some students are eligible for food stamps. So uh, SNAP or food stamps doesn't allow you to participate if you are enrolled in school for more than half time. Uh, But there are some students who meet basic criteria for SNAP eligibility, students who are younger than 18 or older than 50, who have children or who work a minimum of 20 hours a week, they're also eligible. So one of the pushes is for the government uh, to actually do more outreach so that they can help people who are SNAP eligible and enrolled in school actually take advantage of the full benefit. And there are some middle-class students who are, quote, too rich for Pell Grants, but too poor to afford college. So like, you know, the $100,000 salary-ish reign that like, they aren't getting financial aid, but they actually don't have enough, like the families don't have enough money to stave off food insecurity. So I thought this is fascinating. Something that goes underreported, wanted to bring it here. I'm really glad that you brought this up, DeRay, in particular because it feels like in education spaces, we often talk about single strategies. When in reality, anyone who has spent any time working in schools whatsoever knows that there is not a single strategy to ending educational inequity. There are so many variables at the level of higher education, and we often treat young people who graduate from even the most challenged circumstances, once they get to college, we treat them as though you've made it, good luck, now you're on your own, you got it from here. Um, And there are important organizations like Braven and others who are peeling back the, the layers on this and saying, hold on, we have a lot of young people who are having a very difficult time staying in college, doing well in college for 
every reason from the cultural transition to, yes, the financial burdens. My hope, though, is that, um, again, as we look at multiple strategies, that one of the strategies that's employed is that colleges that operate together in uh, sports leagues, various uh, accreditation organizations, in various regions of the country, that they get together and support one another in figuring this problem out. In addition to colleges and universities stepping up, you know, this is something that the federal government could easily step up through policy uh, and address the issue of college affordability. And we know that it would cost about $75 billion in order to provide tuition-free college uh, to every student that wants to go to college in the United States. $75 billion could easily be funded from just taxing a small number of households that make an obscene amount of money. So if we taxed income over $10 million at the 70% marginal rate that Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez has proposed, that would actually raise $104 billion a year, more than enough to fund tuition-free college. If we went back to the estate tax rate that we had in the 1960s and early 70s, that would raise $85 billion, more than enough to provide tuition-free college. So these are things that about 16,000 households in total would be taxed under that marginal tax rate and could provide all of the money needed to provide tuition-free college to all of the students in the United States who want to go to college. So this is something that, that we could do, right, as a society that would only impact folks at the highest uh, level of income in society uh, and only impact them at a marginal rate uh, on their 10 millionth dollar plus. Yeah, I'll just end by saying that uh, this reminds me of a conversation we had last year, uh, I think, around uh, Tony Jack's research. He's at the Harvard Graduate School of Education, and he talks a lot about how uh, so many of these universities keep their dining halls closed over the holidays. For a lot of folks, this is a, a time period in which if they are going back home, they're going back home sometimes to food insecure communities. Uh, if they're not going back home, then they're staying on or near campus and, and they don't have access to uh, to any food. And that's not just for winter break, but that's for spring break, that's for Thanksgiving, that's for fall break. Some of these times are, are the most stressful times uh, for for many students um, in ways that we, we don't fully appreciate as a public. That's the news. Hey, you're listening to Pod Save the People. Stay tuned, there's more to come. You can live out your MasterChef dream when you find a professional on Angie to tackle your dream kitchen remodel. Connect with skilled professionals to get all your home projects done well. Visit Angie.com. You can do this when you Angie that. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. Guys, it's been a rough year. It's going to get rougher, and you deserve a little treat for not going insane yet. You could head to the local tiki bar and tell the bartender, do your worst. But we have a better idea for you, which is pick out something from the Crooked store. The store is stocked with tons of new merch. It's perfect for the spring. And classics like the Friend of the Pod tees that you'll be wearing long after the next administration or the next fascist dictatorship, depending on how things go. Pick up a new tee for the warm weather ahead, a mug that'll remind you to stay involved this election year, or a hat celebrating your favorite pod. Go to crooked.com slash store to shop. And now my conversation with Laura Bazelon. Thanks so much for joining us today on Pod Save the People. Thank you for having me. Now your book, Rectify, The Power of Restorative Justice After Wrongful Conviction, fascinating topic. Can't wait to talk to you about it. I want to start with what led you into wading so deeply into the world of wrongful convictions? What was what was the impetus there? So I think lawyering might be in my DNA. My grandfather was a judge. My dad is a lawyer. And when we were little, my grandfather would call and ask us what we wanted to be when we grew up. And no matter what we said, he would always tell us, no, you want to be a lawyer. So I think <laughs> maybe there was little choice in the matter. But when I went to law school, I always knew I was going to be a public defender because I wanted to represent people who no one else would represent to make sure 
that the system was fair and that they had a shot. How I came to the book was kind of circuitous because I was a federal public defender for seven years. And then after that, I left to run a small innocence project in Los Angeles. And we represented a man named Cash. And he was convicted of a murder that he didn't commit. And he spent 34 years in prison as a result of that. In litigating the case to get him out, I started thinking about the aftermath and what comes next, not just for Cash, but for his mom. And then also for the victim's family who was told a story by the police and prosecutors that was a lie. And so how do they move on? And I learned about this concept, restorative justice, that I didn't know anything about. And the more I learned, the more interested I got in it. You know, restorative justice has become a buzzword in so many places, certainly in public education. How do you define restorative justice? Like, what does that mean? To me, it's reframing the basic questions we ask in the criminal justice system, where we're really focused on punishment, who is to blame, and how to put them away. Restorative justice is really at its core about re-knitting a community back together after a trauma. So it asks who is harmed, what are their needs, and whose obligation is it to meet those needs? And like, what does that look like in practice? It can look a lot of different ways. So the way that I've been looking at it in my book is a pretty unusual way, which is to apply it in cases of wrongful conviction. So I guess I should back up and talk about the more traditional uses of it, particularly in this country. So as you know, we're very slow to embrace non-punitive measures, but in some places that are progressive. So for example, Oakland, across the bridge from where I live in San Francisco, has adopted restorative justice in over half of the Oakland Unified School Districts. And there's a plan in place to make sure 100% of them use it within the next five years. And basically what they're doing is they're trying to stop the school to prison pipeline so that when someone gets in trouble, rather than suspend or expel them, they do these circles. So I'll give you an example. There was this boy, Cedric, who as a young teenager came to school with a loaded gun and it went off in his class. And so in normal circumstances, he would have been suspended or maybe even expelled. And what his school did was to not put him in the justice system, to not put him through their normal disciplinary process, but instead to have this restorative justice circle that was led by this amazing guy who works for our joy named Eric Butler. And they brought Cedric in and his mom and his dad and his stepdad and the school principal and a psychologist and all these members of the community. And they kind of dug down into the root causes of what led him to that point in his life where he had brought a gun to school. And it was just this remarkable moment, really, of reckoning, not just for Cedric, but for everyone in the room kind of owning up to their own piece of responsibility for how he had gotten to this point in his life. And when he started talking about where he was coming from, he wasn't coming from a place of hatred or wanting to harm people. He was coming from a place of he felt like he needed to get money to help his mom. And he was, you know, headed down a path that was not a good path. And at the end of this really emotional meeting, what they did was basically make a life plan for Cedric. They put it up on this whiteboard and every person in the room promised to do something to help him. And Cedric in turn promised to do certain things himself. And in that way, their community came up with a, a system or a set of values that was going to propel him forward in life, not headlong into the justice system, but rather forward and up and out and hopefully through high school where he did successfully graduate. What has it been like to work on wrongful conviction cases? Like, I imagine that you get asked to explore so many things that don't turn out to be the things you can do anything about, but then there's like a small set that you find some way that you can prove that it's wrong. Like, what's that process even like? It kind of runs on different tracks. So once you know you have a righteous case that you think you can prove, oftentimes what happens, and this happened in Cash's case, is that you come up with intense, implacable resistance from the state. And so you have the prosecutor saying, essentially, we're not backing down and we're going to fight you every step of the way. And at that point, what happens is this surge of adrenaline that basically lasts 18 months until you can get your client out. And pretty much every night and every morning, you're thinking about that case and you're thinking about your strategy and you're thinking about what you're going to do next when you go into court. And you're thinking in a very adversarial way about what you need to do to completely dismember the state's case and leave it in a heap on the floor. And it's a very high pressure, <laughs> high adrenaline place to live. And it's very hard to live the rest of your life the rest of your personal life in particular when you're in that place. So that's one track. And then, of course, there's just this overwhelming feeling of 
relief and satisfaction and happiness when that moment comes and the judge lets her client out, which is just inexplicable. But you also refer to these cases that you can't prove. And those cases are so haunting. I mean, I have had cases where I know my guy didn't do it, or I know this woman I'm representing didn't do it, but I don't have the proof necessary to get them out. And without that proof, you're stuck in this holding pattern, just hoping that something will break and change the trajectory. But until then, also knowing that you can't get them out, which is just the most horrible feeling that you can imagine. How do you make sure that you don't sort of get people too energized and you can't follow through when they're your clients? Like, what's that like? So I always try and be really measured. And I should start out by saying that my background is being a public defender. So let's just say I'm really used to coming in second, which is what we always called it when the jury convicted our clients. So I'm used to being very measured and I'm not used to winning because, as you know, overwhelmingly the state wins. So I try and be very, very realistic. But with someone like Cash, it was hard for me not to inject some amount of hope while tempering it. And so you have to walk this this balance between you don't obviously want your client to think that there's some kind of percentage chance of them getting out. And any lawyer who tells you there's an 80% chance or a 90% chance is a lawyer you should immediately fire. But at the same time, you need them to keep hope alive. And so you have to kind of walk that tightrope. And then in the cases where you're hoping for a break, you have to be realistic with your client and say, look, right now we can't go to court because if we did, we would lose. And so we have to hang on and keep digging and keep hoping that something is going to break and I need you to hang in there with me. And those are really hard conversations, too. How do people get falsely convicted in such high numbers? Is it that people are pleading out and that's a problem? Or like that's the main reason? Is it like faulty DNA? Is it like sketchy testimony? Like, are there any threads there? You've covered a lot of ground right there. There are some other ground, though. So alarmingly, in over half of wrongful conviction cases, there was official misconduct, which means that police and prosecutors didn't follow the rules. Over half? Yeah. Well, there's that cause, right, which is official misconduct, big cause. There is false confessions where police coerce confessions out of people who, in fact, didn't do what they confessed to doing. There are mistaken identifications where witnesses in good faith make an identification, but it's wrong. And oftentimes with those, what's going on is that it's a cross-racial identification because we're really, really bad at identifying people outside of our own racial group. Then there's actually false testimony where people go in and lie which is agonizing but true. And then there's also the basis that you cited to, which is that people plead guilty when they're innocent all the time. And those are the ones that are the hardest to capture, I think, because first of all, if you have a guilty plea, it's really hard to convince anyone to take your case, much less a judge to release you. And two, a lot of times people plead guilty to, for example, time served to get out because they're so desperate to get out. And that's one of the horrible things, for example, about the cash for bail system, which keeps people locked up who are too poor to free themselves. And then they plead just to be released. And in those cases, again, you know, they haven't served 10, 20 years, maybe they've served six months. And so no one's going to take that case and actually exonerate them. But to give you an example of how big that problem is, there's this county in Texas, Harris County. They had, like many counties, a real processing system where police would pull people over. They do these in-the-field drug tests, tell the person that whatever they possessed was cocaine or whatever it was. The person who would be held without bail, they would plead guilty. And then months later, the test would come back from the lab. And in many, many of these cases, the field tests were just completely defective. And it was things like Domino's Sugar and Jolly Ranchers that were the actual substances and not drugs. And so they started exonerating people. And they exonerated over 125 people that way in a single county. But they only caught it because they actually did the test results post-guilty plea. And in most counties, that's not what happens. The person pleads guilty and they don't test the evidence because they figure, well, why should I? I have the plea. Is that a policy thing that we can ask for in other places, like to demand that the evidence gets tested even if there's a guilty plea? Who decides that? Like, What can people listening do for that? So it's really interesting. In that case, there was the chief of the conviction integrity unit, this woman, Inger Chandler. 
And it was her policy that she put in place. I mean, she's the real hero of the story who said, you know, I want these test results. I want them done. And in a lot of DA offices, it really is discretionary where you're counting on the person who's in that position to say, well, hold on a minute. I want to see the evidence, even if we have secured a guilty plea. I think the other thing we can do is push for laws and rulings and legal motions and advocacy around the use of this so-called junk science, because in a lot of counties, what juries are being told is, oh, hey, you should believe this field test or you should believe this bite mark matches this other bite mark or you should believe this hair matches the defendant's hair. And in fact, none of that is true. So every day in courts, junk science is being introduced and it's being used against defendants to get them to plead guilty. That's so wild. Yeah. And one thing, sometimes people say to me, well, what can I do? I'm not a lawyer. I'm not a judge. My life isn't directly touched by the system. And what I say is, you know what you can do? You can be the best possible juror. You can go in and you can do your jury duty and you can go back in that room and you can be skeptical and you can stand up when you have doubt. Because the other thing that often happens is that there will be people in the jury room who will have doubt. They'll listen to the evidence and they'll think, this sounds kind of weak. And then it'll be 10 against two. And then one person will fold. And then it's 11 to one. And it's really hard to hold out under that kind of pressure, especially when it's Friday afternoon and everyone wants to go home. And what I tell people is, you have got to hold out. You have got to hold out and stand by your convictions. How do you explain your book to people? Like when they're like, what is Rectify about? What do you say to them? My elevator speech is that it looks at the justice system when you come out the other side. And so what it's asking is, what is life like after an exoneration, not just for the person who is wrongfully convicted, but for the original crime victims and their families? And what's so interesting about the use of restorative justice in the context of a wrongful conviction is that everybody is a victim in a certain way. So, for example, People who were wrongfully convicted were branded rapists and murderers, and in fact, they were victimized and they're innocent. But then on the other hand, the people who were horribly, horribly taken advantage of and killed and raped and had all these things happen to them, they feel like perpetrators because they participated unwittingly in this catastrophe, which was the wrongful conviction, whether it was that they testified and they were wrong or just that they prayed every night that the person would be executed. And so they're the only two people in the world who can truly understand a wrongful conviction from a 360 degree perspective. And it's the story told from both perspectives as they meet each other through restorative justice practices. Yeah, I'd love to know, like, what do you know, you are, were already a lawyer way before you started to write a book or way before the book came out. But in the process of writing the book, was there anything that you learned that even you were surprised by? Yes. Okay, so this is the thing that surprised me the most. As I mentioned, I am trained to be a public defender. So I'm trained to represent people who are accused of really serious crimes who are looking at a lot of time in jail or in prison. And that is a training and a mindset that is very adversarial. So what I did in my work as a public defender and even really through the litigation at the Innocence Project was not think about the victims. I felt like I couldn't, that it was upsetting. It was distracting. The only time I ever really thought about them was if I had to cross-examine them or how to explain them consistent with my theory of the defense. And what I realized in researching this book was that you can be a good lawyer and be empathic toward victims. So the best example of that is one of the cases I follow. There's this guy, Thomas Hainsworth, who was wrongfully convicted of raping three white women. He's African-American in three separate incidents and sentenced to 74 years to life. And his lawyer, in her efforts to get him out, forged a relationship with one of the victims and essentially went to her after the DNA test results came out and said, would you be willing to be an advocate? And be, and she did that because in the other two cases, the evidence had been destroyed and there was no DNA. So they were going to have to convince the judges that he was, in fact, innocent in these two other cases, which was a huge uphill battle. And the victim, her name's Janet, was receptive. She was skeptical, but then she was receptive to the lawyer's advocacy and overtures toward her. And I think part of it was that the police had come to her house, Janet's house, and told her this 
crushing news, which is that she had identified the wrong person and he had spent 26 years in prison. Then they left saying, well, you shouldn't worry about it because the actual rapist wasn't a good guy, but neither is the guy you identified, which is, of course, offensive and, in fact, not true. And then they just never came back. So she was left with a vortex of emotion, but also in a total vacuum in terms of information. And Thomas's lawyer was able to provide her a lot of information about how wrongful identifications happen, about how this case had taken all the twists and turns that it had taken, and how Janet could play a part in the exoneration. And Sean talks about it as a watershed moment for her because she had a similar mindset that I described to you. And she realized, you know, I was actually a better lawyer to Thomas once I thought seriously about the case from the victim's point of view and really did the best I could to be empathic and form a relationship. And so that part of the book and that learning piece for me was the most surprising and kind of the most game-changing in the terms of the way I think about my own advocacy. Are there states that compensate people better than other states when it comes to wrongful conviction? And you talked about the racial classifications. Like, can you talk, can you explain that a little bit better, like how that happens so frequently? So the wrongful conviction compensation statutes are all over the map, literally. So, for example, if you are wrongfully convicted in the state of Pennsylvania and you get out, the state will give you nothing, not one dime. If you cross the bridge into New Jersey and you are wrongfully convicted, the state will give you, I think, $50,000 a year and some other benefits. If you're wrongfully convicted in Texas and you can prove that and you are exonerated, you get $80,000 a year. And then in other states, you get a lump sum of $25,000 a year, no matter how much time you did. So it's completely random, freakish, and unfair. What's next for you? Well, right now, what I'm really fascinated by, and I'm glad you asked, is the felony murder rule and efforts to revise it sharply and in some ways do away with it. Basically, Felony murder says that if you and some other people decide to commit some kind of a crime, say a robbery, and it goes horribly wrong and someone dies, even if you're not the killer, you didn't intend for the person to die, you didn't know that your co-defendant had a weapon, and this is completely sort of beyond your comprehension. Under felony murder, you can be convicted of first-degree murder, and the vast majority of states have the felony murder rule. In California, This remarkable thing happened where a coalition of advocates convinced the California legislature to pass a bill basically doing away with the part of felony murder that I just described. And the way that I'm looking at it is on its disproportionate impact on women, because there's a study in California that shows that a grossly disproportionate percentage of women who are doing time for murder and doing time for life without the possibility of parole went down on felony murder when they were not the trigger person, when they were not the person who intended the crime. And in fact, when in some cases they weren't even present when it happened. So you can kind of visualize these scenarios where they get involved in an abusive, toxic relationship. They drive the boyfriend to the scene. He goes inside. Something horrible happens he comes out, they drive the boyfriend away. Some of those women are are doing life without the possibility of parole. And so I'm really looking into, can we make the argument not only that this is unfair from just the basic fundamental premise of our system, but can we also make the argument that this is racially disproportionate as most or if not all criminal justice laws are, and that it has this grossly disproportionate effect on women and particularly women of color struggling in abusive relationships. What do you say to the people who have marched, protested, been to the meetings, testified before the councils, like did all this stuff, and the outcomes actually haven't changed in a way they wanted them to? What do you say to those people? It's so hard. I mean, you've written about this in your book, but you have got to hold on to hope. And the only other option is to cave into despair and let the other side crush you. And I just think we can't let that happen. If we don't get up and keep fighting, nothing is going to change. And so I just think that we have to hold on to hope and we have to believe that most people are reachable and that minds can be changed. What's a piece of advice that you've gotten over the years that stuck with you? So I wish I could tell you that it was given to me directly. It's a piece of advice that Brian Stevenson gives. He founded the Equal Justice Initiative, and he has this line that he says, which resonates with me, that he tells a story that he was in this courtroom just getting battered about trying to stand up for this client who was 14 and being tried as an adult. 
And the janitor came and sat behind him. And when one of the prosecutors asked in this really presumptuous way, you know, what are you doing in here? He said, I'm here for him. And then he said to Brian Stevenson, keep your eyes on the prize and hold on. And to me, it's kind of of a piece with your last question. I always think, keep your eyes on the prize, which is another way of saying, play the long game, because there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of distraction and people will try to take you down. And there will be days where you feel like you fell down and then you just have to get back up. And if we don't keep our eyes on the prize, no one else will. Thanks so much for being able to talk today. I loved talking to you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that's it. Thanks so much for tuning in to Pod Save the People this week. Tell your friends to check it out. Make sure to rate it wherever you get your podcast, whether it's Apple Podcasts or somewhere else. And we'll see you next week. The Angie's List you know and trust is now Angie. And we're so much more than just a list. We still connect you with top local pros and show you ratings and reviews. But now we also let you compare upfront prices on hundreds of projects and book a service instantly. We can even handle the rest of your project from start to finish. So remember, Angie's List is now Angie, and we're here to get your job done right. Get started at Angie.com. That's A-N-G-I, or download the app today. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. With the Internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. In fact, Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash podcast free. All lowercase, shopify.com slash podcast free, shopify.com slash podcast free. (laughs) 